Fantastic. Thanks very much, Sarah. And thanks very much for um, to all of you for joining us today. So the, the plan today, just before I introduce our speakers, um, was really just to give a, a bit of an overview of the story so far with Signature Bank, with Silicon Valley Bank. So what's been going on in the US, what's been going on in the UK and where things might go next. Um, probably just before we start, I wanted to say one thing that we're not going to cover in detail on this session is any specific transaction related issues. Um, obviously, we are looking at those for a number of clients. Um, we've got a number of colleagues who've been looking at these in various different jurisdictions. Um, so obviously, if you have particular questions, do feel free to reach out to your normal Clifford Chance contact. I think also in terms of specific um, materials that you might want to take a look at, uh, anyone who follows Andrew Husden on LinkedIn might want to take a look at his post on the funds finance side, which has a lot of excellent information in it. Um, but for today, we're going to steer clear of the specific transactional side of things, and we're going to look much more at the the, the overall story of really um, what's been going on. So before we kick off, I just wanted to introduce my speakers today. Uh, roughly in alphabetical order, we've got Phil Angeloff from our Washington office. We've got Jeff Berman and Young Kim from our New York office. We've got Chris Gray from our tech team in London. Uh, we have Brian Harley from our Hong Kong office, Jack Hardman from our UAE office, John McLennan uh, from the insolvency team in our London office, and me, Caroline Dawson, from the financial regulation team also in the London office. So to kick things off then, maybe if we just start by looking at the US and Phil turning to you. So can you just give us a, a quick overview of actually what happened on Sunday night? Um, so what action were the Treasury, the Fairs, the FDIC looking to take with respect to Signature Bank? Thanks, Caroline. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm sure everyone on the call is aware uh, at this point that uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was placed in an FDIC receivership on Friday. Uh, and that Signature Bank was placed in an FDIC receivership yesterday. Um, I will just uh, set the stage for our talk by providing a very brief overview of uh, what's taken uh, place over the last uh, three days and the actions of the regulators to address the turmoil at SVB and Signature Bank. And I'll also provide a very brief uh, background on the structure the regulatory status of these banking organizations, which we, we thought might be helpful. Um, so S Signature Bank was about half the size of SVB. Uh, it was not part of a bank holding company structure and it had no international footprint. Um, SVB was the larger and more complex bank banking organization uh, with an international footprint, which is uh, why its failure would uh, likely have repercussions uh, beyond the United States and Caroline, John and others will we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, SVB had a bank subsidiary in the UK. Uh, we understand that it also had a joint venture bank in China and uh, banking branches in Germany, Canada and Cayman Islands. Uh, SVB was also part of a bank holding company structure uh, of which the ultimate holding company uh, was uh, SVB uh, Financial. Um, so uh, SVB Financial operates uh, multiple non-bank subsidiaries in the United States and in several foreign countries, um, including in uh, China, India, and Israel. Um, these uh, subsidiaries and the holding company are not part of the FDIC receivership. Um, and to the extent 
the holding company uh, is insolvent, uh, it and its non-bank subsidiaries would be subject to an insolvency proceeding under the bankruptcy code. Uh, SVB itself was a California state bank, uh, state bank um, that uh, was chartered by the California state banking regulator, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Um, and the DFBI on Friday determined SVP is insolvent and appointed the FDIC as a receiver. Uh, Jeff will talk uh, in a bit about the reasons for SVP's failure, uh, but ultimately the bank experienced the classic bank run. Um, the FDIC announced on Friday that it had created the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara, uh, to which it had transferred all of SVB's insured deposits. Uh, the S, uh, the uh, FDIC also announced uh, on Friday that all of SVB's insured deposits uh, will uh, will be um, fully paid, and the insured depositors will have access to those deposits on Monday, and it will pay an insured depositors an advance dividend within a week. Uh, the FDIC also said that uninsured depositors will receive a receivership certificate for the remaining amount of their uh, funds that's not paid out as a dividend and that future dividends may um, may be paid out. So SVB had approximately 210 billion in total assets and about 175 billion in total deposits. And a large portion of these deposits was uh, uninsured. So the FDIC's Friday announcement was not particularly reassuring and it precipitated a run on Signature Bank uh, which was ultimately closed yesterday by its chartering authority, the New York State Department of Financial Services. Um, Signature Bank had total assets of approximately 110 billion and total deposits of approximately 89 billion as of the end of last year. The FDIC announced yesterday that in the Signature Bank's case, uh, it had established a, a bridge national bank to which it has transferred all of the deposits and substantially all of the assets of uh, Signature Bank. Uh, the FDIC intends to operate this British National Bank in an effort to find a, a buyer. Uh, and it's noteworthy then the case of SVB. Um, no assets were transferred to the Deposit Insurance National Banks of Santa Clara, uh, which is a special type of bank that the FDIC uh, will use just to pay out SVB's deposits. Um, so as the weekend progressed, it became clearer that the panic could spread to other banks, uh, triggering more bank runs. But to prevent other dominoes from falling, the Secretary of the Treasury, Ms. Yellen, made a systemic risk determination, uh, enabling the FDIC to essentially backstop the uninsured depositors of SVB and Signature Bank. Uh, the making of such a determination is authorized under a 1991 amendment to the Federal Deposit Insurance Act, uh, which governs the bank receivership proceedings uh, and provides for a so-called systemic risk exception to the least cost resolution mandate that otherwise applies to protect the federal deposit insurance uh, fund. The systemic risk exception was used in, um, in the last financial crisis. I guess key difference this time is that U.S. authorities have made it very clear that shareholders and creditors other than the depositors uh, would not be bailed out. 
the uh, systemic risk exception authorizes any assistance by uh, the FDIC uh, that would avoid or mitigate serious adverse effects on financial stability upon a determination by the Secretary of the Treasury uh, in consultation with the President and upon a written recommendation of the boards of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. As a result of the Treasury's determination yesterday, the FDIC Deposit Insurance Fund would be used to pay uninsured depositors of the two banks, SVB and Signature. Uh, those would be paid in full, and any losses to the Deposit Insurance Fund would be recovered by a special assessment on all banks, uh, as is required under the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. So, in addition, the Federal Reserve announced yesterday that it will set up a bank term funding program to provide additional liquidity to banks. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Young to talk a bit more about this program. Sorry, just muting myself. Um, thank you, Phil. I appreciate that color. So I, I just want to talk briefly about the the emergency facility that the Fed set up over the weekend. Just describing its terms as well as the history for um, for its enactment, as well as how it's different from other emergency facilities like the, the Fed discount window. So um, you know we've been inundated with acronyms. Uh, but we have a new one, which is the BTFM, the Bank Term Funding Program. Clearly, it was it was it was set up to uh, spread uh, to stem the spread of contagion to other banks, um, and this was announced simultaneous with the action that um, with the joint statement that Phil discussed, um, stating that uh, all all depositors of Signature, as well as SVB, would essentially be made whole. Um, so, it's it's. Um, I think they also wanted to stem a situation where um, there's depositor flight, particularly to to other GSIBs, resulting in, in more concentration risk to the larger banks and potentially further exacerbating the too big to fail phenomenon. Um, so the emergency facility is set up under the Federal Reserve's authority under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. Um, this is the provision that allows the Fed to set up emergency facilities under quote unquote unusual and exigent circumstances. Um, it dates back to the Great Depression and has been used quite seldomly, except it was used very frequently during the financial crisis um, to set up quite a few emergency facilities, as well as to facilitate the bailout of, of AIG, um, as well as um, Bear Stearns. Um, there were quite a few changes that were made um, to the Fed's authority because it was deemed very politically unpopular um, that individual firms were bailed out. Um, but subsequent to that, it was used again during the coronavirus pandemic uh, when they resuscitated some of those emergency facilities, uh, as well as uh, instituted new ones, most famous of which was, was the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, the terms of the facility should be noted, these are secure draws with eligible collateral, primarily consisting of treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, uh, as well as agency securities, which is the same type of eligible collateral for the Fed discount window. We know there was some chatter over the weekend as to uh, exactly how the Fed would um, provide some emergency liquidity to the banking sector. Uh, and there was some discussion that they would ease the terms for access to the Fed discount window, but it seems they, they decided to go with this emergency facility instead. Um, so the draws can be up to one year um, and the facility is set to exp expire within a year's timeframe. And it's also guaranteed by, by $25 billion uh, from funds provided by the U.S. Treasury Department. Um, what, the one thing that's very noteworthy about this facility, uh, in contrast to draws into the Fed discount window, is that the collateral value of securities pledged uh, 
uh, are valued at par value and not fair value, um, which is uh, perhaps um, a recognition that losses on the asset side of some of these banks' balance sheet is really what was the the, the origins of this crisis. Um, I think it would be clear to say that that this facility would have been certainly helpful for for signature uh, as well as um, Silicon Valley and Silvergate before they collapsed. Um, so theoretically, that means for a um, hundred dollars, um, you could borrow a hundred dollars on the face value of a treasury note, even if that note is actually underwater and only worth ninety dollars. Um, I'll also note that the Fed FDIC recently reported that. Uh, losses on the, the asset side of, of bank balance sheets for available for sale securities as well as held to maturity securities is north of $600 billion. Um, so this is clearly an effort to kind of spread, uh, stem the, the potential spread of further contagion arising from those losses. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jeff to kind of have a discussion as to why we think some of these banks failed. Thanks, Young. Um, <clears throat> well, there have been a lot of hot takes over the past few days over why the various banks have failed from Silvergate to Silicon Valley to Signature. So I figured I'd add a few of my own. Um, look, I think one thing, looking for common patterns, I think one thing that ties these three situations together is tremendous deposit growth over the last couple of years. Um, some of it's driven by pandemic and, and, and decreased spending. Some of it's driven by particular business models followed by the bank. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, for example, had relationships throughout the VC community. And a lot of um, VC portfolio companies that had raised a pile of cash on the markets through financing rounds, deposited the cash with Silicon Valley Bank pending deployment. Um, in the case of Signature and Silvergate, they had relationships acting as essentially payment providers to cryptocurrency exchanges, and that resulted in a whole lot of money being placed on deposit. What's remarkable, at least from my perspective, is that somewhere between 80 and 95% of the deposits in all of these banks were uninsured. They were individual deposits way beyond the $250,000 deposit insurance limit, um, which meant that people were taking a risk that you can argue they should have known about but i think there was no reason to fear at least on a credit quality level what was going on at these banks now here's what happened to the banks it one difference between these failures and like the last round of bank failures is that there are no holes in these balance sheets um the banks are all invested fully in high quality securities and other instruments uh there is no counterparty credit risk faced by those banks that's unusual. In fact, most of the securities are government-issued, zero credit risk securities. The problem with them is that interest rate risk was not properly managed at any of these banks. Uh, the, it's, you know, take Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet, which we know the most about. It was largely long duration. Um, Treasury and agency MBS securities that were held um, in uh, hold to maturity accounts at the bank, meaning that they were booked at their uh, purchase value, but not marked to market. When some of those securities had to be sold uh, in order to satisfy deposit uh, redemptions, uh, the entire portfolio or parts of the portfolio had to be 
remarked to account for the current value, which had gone underwater due to the fact that interest rates in general have been going way up four points or so over the last year because of federal, federal Reserve action, and the value of those securities had dropped accordingly. Uh, the the hole in the balance sheet resulting from that uh, was resulting from that mark to market is what drove other depositors to run, and the whole thing was exacerbated by a great deal of of um, what I would call so, so social media contagion factors <laughs> um, that basically you had all these depositors with a fair amount of commonality of interest and social connections among them, all advising one another to uh, run as fast as possible. So the the combination of a very rigid asset side invested in long maturity instruments that had a low interest rate, highly volatile deposit side, largely uninsured and therefore prone to nervousness with a lot of social commonality among them, is I think the common factor among all three of these banks. No one knows really how widespread this phenomenon is in the larger banking sector. Um, it's clear that the very biggest banks don't suffer from this problem. They have this much more stable um, deposit base uh, with a an actual franchise value built into the core deposit intangible of those banks. Uh, but there's many mid-sized and smaller banks with specialized business models that attract a lot of deposits and tend not to or have not tended to pay a lot of attention to the risk of rising interest rates. So I think that's <laughs> that's the summary I'd like to give to the, to the that's my hot take on what's happened here. Um, Young, do you want to take us into the FDIC process some more? Yeah, sure, and appreciate that, Jeff. Uh, so I'll I'll just cover the general process for resolving failed banks, and uh, keeping in mind that some of this is actually uh, irrelevant with respect to the the recent failures, because uh, you know the agency have taken some quite some extraordinary measures. Um, so it's important to note that um, the resolution of the failed bank uh, that's FDIC insured is an administrative process and not a judicial one. Um, through which the FDIC has special powers to liquidate the bank, recognizing that they are special to the health of the economy. Um, so FDIC insured banks are not eligible to file under the bankruptcy code. code. They're resolved under uh, the statutory provisions under the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. Um, so the typical process for, for resolving a bank is that the FDIC comes in as of the close of business on a Friday to, to minimize customer disruptions and uh, insured deposits are made available as soon as possible. Um, and uh, typically they, they try to um, sell the bank to, to a healthy acquire uh, via what's known as a purchase and assumption transaction, where uh, the acquiring bank assumes the deposit liabilities of the failed bank. So most banks are resolved in this fashion. And we're also aware that the FDIC tried to uh, do the same with respect to, to SVB over the weekend. Although my understanding is that that auction failed. Um, the other option at the FDIC's disposal is to use a, um, a liquidation depositor payout strategy. Basically, they pay out the insured deposits and then they liquidate the assets of the bank uh, and then pay out the claims of um, claimants to the failed bank, depending on their order of priority. Um, the FDIC has quite a few tools in its arsenal to, to help the 
uh, resolution of these failed banks, including the use of bridge banks, as they've done in the case of Signature Bank, uh, to buy themselves more time to resolve and unwind the bank and position it for sale to a healthy acquirer. Um, so I, next, I think I'll, I'll discuss the treatment of, of customers that may have been exposed to these institutions. So first off, uh, as it relates to depositors, um, you know, we know that um, depositors of Signature Bank, uh, as well as um, Silicon Valley Bank, will be made whole, uh, full 100 cents on the dollar, insured or not. Um, I also want to highlight that as it relates to uh, bank insolvencies more generally, uh, depositors receive what's known as statutory preference, uh, which was a provision that was added uh, under FIDISHA back in 1991. And so they are senior to other general and secured creditors of the bank. Um, and therefore, that, that provision tends to improve their recovery rates. Um, after a bank failure, there's also usually the payment of an advanced dividend. Um, and uh, to the extent there's a shortfall, and this is assuming another healthy bank hasn't assumed all the deposit liabilities, um, they'd, they'd be filing a, a proof of claim uh, for the remaining um, unpaid amounts, uh, which we resolved in a, in a process that's similar to what you would see in a bankruptcy proceeding, where there's a bar date that's scheduled uh, and the FDIC would resolve claims as they come in. And as it relates to the custodial clients, we do know that, that some customers may have had securities uh, custodied with Silicon Valley Bank. So provided those are, are held pursuant to a bona fide fiduciary and trust relationship, those are not part of uh, Silicon Valley Bank's estate. Uh, there may be a delay um, to receiving those funds, but we would expect that those assets are returned in due course. Um, as it relates to borrowers who've, who've, who've received money from, from Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other uh, banks that failed, um, you know, the FDIC has announced that you should continue to make payments as scheduled. As those are assets from uh, the position of the bank, um, you know, the expectation is that they, they could be sold uh, off to a, to a different um, acquirer um, and are still on the books. Um, as it relates to loan commitments, uh, one thing to note, as I mentioned, the FDIC has, has special powers uh, to resolve banks. And one of their extraordinary powers is, is the power of repudiation, which is their right to unilaterally terminate any obligations um, under existing contracts. Um, and that means there is certainly a possibility that the FDIC could repudiate uh, any obligations to fund under loan commitments, um, which I'm sure is a concern for, for quite a few borrowers. Um, additionally, Claims for damages as a result of the repudiation are limited to actual compensatory damages and not consequential damages. Um, so it remains to be uh, unclear as to what the recovery is going to look like um, for the FDIC's repudiated claims. Uh, and with that, um, uh, I'll flip it over to, to my colleague John to kind of discuss what's happening in the UK. Thanks very much, Young. Uh, so the, the situation in the UK has focused on Silicon uh, Valley Bank UK Limited. This was the UK incorporated subsidiary of the US Bank, and it was authorised and regulated in the UK uh, to take deposits and conduct uh, certain other types of business. Uh, it was thought that the UK Bank had around 3,000 customers, mainly in the technology and life sciences sector. Uh, and at the uh, point of this morning's announcement, uh, SVB UK 
uh, was thought to have deposits of around 6.7 billion uh, sterling. They've made loans of around 5.5 uh, million pounds uh, sterling as well. The bank itself wasn't actually thought to be of systemic importance to the UK financial system. Uh, as it didn't provide critical sort of uh, architecture functions to the operation of the UK financial system. And I think that's just a sort of important point to have in mind for when we begin uh, to look at uh, sort of where this went. Uh, so let, let, let's just pause and think then for a moment about what happened. Well, what happened? Similarly to the US bank, uh, the UK bank suffered a loss of confidence and depositors sought to withdraw. Uh, Draw funds, which uh, prompted a severe deterioration in liquidity. Uh, in turn, on Friday, this resulted in an announcement from the Bank of England to the effect that, absent any further information, the Bank of England would be applying for a bank insolvency order in relation to SVB UK. And the announcement went on to also note that in the in, in the interim the uh, SVB UK would stop making payments or accepting uh, deposits. The uh, UK bank itself uh, posted a similar announcement on, on Friday as well, noting that barring any intervening events, uh, it, it was likely that the bank would enter into bank insolvency proceedings on Sunday evening. Uh, so, so that, that was the sort of the, the position. So then in terms of what was being considered, what action was being considered to be taken in relation to the UK bank, I think it's probably fair to say that as of Friday and certainly the early part of the weekend, the bank insolvency procedure was looking like the most likely outcome. Uh, bank insolvency is a modified form of the liquidation or winding up procedure which is used for corporates and it's uh, specifically uh, tailored for UK banks. Uh, it's really only appropriate to use this procedure where the failure of the particular bank will not have any systemic impact on UK banking and financial system. And that's also something which the Bank of England have come out to say it would be the case. In terms of the main difference between the sort of regular corporate liquidation procedure and the bank insolvency procedure, the, the main difference is the objectives that the liquidator in the bank insolvency procedure needs to follow. Uh, and there are two objectives. The first is that the liquidator needs to work with the financial services compensation scheme to try and ensure that eligible depositors have their accounts transferred to another financial institution or that they uh, receive compensation uh, from the FSCS. And that's up to a maximum of 85,000 sterling. And the second objective is that the liquidator needs to wind up the bank to achieve the best result for creditors. So what does that mean? It means that the liquidator needs to work out what the liabilities are, uh, needs to realise the assets and then make distribution to creditors according to the creditor uh, hierarchy priority. The first of those objectives has priority, but, but the liquidator needs to pursue both in parallel. So that, that was very much what was being considered. Uh, alongside that, 
And, and I guess in case only the second objective was achievable, I, I wasn't possible to, to effect a transfer of customer deposits to another financial institution. It seemed clear from press reports that the government was also working on a plan to ensure that depositors who banked uh, with the uh, SVB UK would be able to have access to liquidity, access to cash uh, on as of this morning, as of Monday morning when, when uh, business hours resumed. Uh, you will all have seen, I'm sure, the letter that was written to the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer by about 140 or so uh, CEOs and founders of technology businesses who banked with SVB UK. And he made it clear that, that there would have been a, a severe and adverse effect to, to all of those firms had SVB UK not been up and running on Monday morning. So they were able to access uh, their cash to, to, to meet payroll and suppliers and, and, and all of the other payments that a living, breathing business needs to, to make. It wasn't entirely clear from the press as to what this sort of backup the government was considering would involve, but it looked as though it might involve a loan to these customers by the British Business Bank. Those loans in turn being guaranteed uh, by the government and the loans ultimately uh, repaid from future distributions to depositors by the liquidator. But I mean, as I say, this was all gleaned from press reports and wasn't entirely clear. But in the event, we ended up somewhere quite different. So through the weekend, work was also undertaken, you would see from the press, to seek a purchaser for SVB UK. And you will all, of course, have seen the good news this morning that that, that work was successful and that HSBC Bank UK PLC, which is the UK ring fence subsidiary of HSBC Holdings, uh, was able to acquire SVB UK for a pound. The transaction itself was actually delivered through the UK's special resolution regime for banks, which is part of the UK Banking Act. And under this regime, the Bank of England, as the resolution authority, was able to use one of its stabilisation powers to transfer the shares in SVB UK to a private sector purchaser, in this case, HSBC. HSBC. Uh, for those of you that are sort of interested, there is a link to the actual transfer instrument itself, which does this legally, and, and that can be found uh, as a linked statement that the Bank of England published this morning about the transaction. Uh, when exercising uh, the resolution powers, the relevant authorities here in the UK uh, have to, there's a couple of things. The, first, they have to have regard to the objectives of the special resolution regime, and those and there's a number of objectives and they include protecting public funds and they also include protecting depositors uh, who are covered by the financial services compensation scheme and the authorities also need to be satisfied that certain conditions to the utilization of these stabilization powers are met uh, and one of those conditions is that, that the bank is failing or, or is likely to fail and that was clearly a conclusion that was reached and had been reached uh, earlier on Friday when the intention had been announced that they intended to seek a, a bank insolvency order. I think I'd probably just conclude by saying that the circumstances of SB, SVB UK and the circumstances in which HSBC were able to acquire it were exactly the kind of situation that the resolution of enabling a transfer to a private sector purchaser were sort of 
intended and conceived for. So it was almost like a classic use of this power. So that's all I wanted to say about what sort of happened uh, in the UK. And all but well, I was going to turn over to my partner, Caroline, to talk about what that means for UK depositors uh, going forward. Thanks very much, John. Um, so yeah, I think I'm invisible, but hopefully I am still audible. Um, so I, I was just, although we weren't going to talk about uh, transaction specific issues, I was just going to look very quickly at um, what the impact would have been for um, depositors of SVB UK if it had gone into an insolvency procedure um, versus obviously the approach that was taken with it in the resolution procedure. And clearly, um, if you're going into an insolvency procedure, then for the um, deposits of the of the bank, you're looking at whether or not those are going to be within the scope of the financial um, financial services compensation scheme. So whether they're going to be subject to deposit protection, and clearly there are limits on the extent to which deposit to deposit protection is going to apply. As John said, clearly a lot of the depositors of SVB UK were thinking about immediate issues on Monday morning. They're thinking about are they going to be able to make payroll? Um, and the deposit protection scheme really only, although the idea of the scheme is to ensure that protected depositors continue to have access to their accounts, even in the insolvency of the deposit taking institution, up to the level of the protection, that protection only covers you up to £85,000. Um, and only covers you if you're an eligible depositor. So clearly there are some potential holes in that. And then for other um, other transactions, other depositors, um, other creditors, you're really going to be looking at your documentation to see whether you've got events of default built in, whether they're going to be triggered by the relevant um, insolvency action and working out what it is you need to do next. Obviously with the bank going into resolution, you don't trigger that deposit protection scheme, it's not needed. So the idea is that uh, essentially the, the entity continues um, in a business as usual situation. So the depositors continue to have access to their deposits. They can make their payroll on Monday morning. In terms of other creditors, again, you would be looking at what your documentation says, but there are specific provisions in the resolution powers um, essentially aimed at protecting the entity in resolution so ensuring that it's not possible to terminate certain types of contracts with that counterparty just because it's been placed into resolution action. Um, so I suppose really before we wrap up, um, I think we just wanted to do a quick sort of um, go around the speakers and think about what's next. So what can we take out of this? And in terms of at least the UK bank, hopefully we're back to business as usual for that bank. I mean, the, the UK government's been very clear that they felt they needed to take decisive action to protect customer deposits so that business continues, um, could continue as normal and importantly, with no taxpayer support. And obviously then they took that decisive action. So I guess the question is, is it just nothing to see here? But obviously it's still the second largest bank failure in US history. So I think it probably the first point would be it's definitely worth taking this as a prompt to check your understanding of what's going to happen if your deposit taking bank goes into insolvency and um, just really doing a, a bit of a health check on your exposures um, and on your documentation. I think the other point that I wanted to pick up on was that the UK is currently in the middle of the biggest regulatory rewrite in its recent history. Um, so I guess if you have a bank that comes close to insolvency, 
is that going to have any impact on that regulatory re rewrite? Are the regulators going to be looking back on that and saying, are there any particular signs, any particular red flags that regulators could have spotted or should have spotted um, to head this off at the pass? I suppose, Chris, maybe just to turn to you on the tech side, obviously, because um, you know the vast majority of the depositors were, were tech firms. Are there any particular lessons learned, any particular points that you'd want to flag to, to tech companies? Caroline. Um, so I'll be looking at this from the perspective of uh, tech companies and investors that banked with uh, SVB. So obviously in the last 24 hours, it's been great good news for uh, UK startups and investors. Uh, as my colleagues have explained, the uh, US government announcements and the acquisition of SVB uh, UK is no doubt a great relief to the many companies and investors that banked with SVB. Uh, and as John detailed earlier, it's been quite a turnaround since Friday. Um, the UK government acted urgently over the weekend and hundreds of UK techs in touch with the government to convey the importance of the bank to the ecosystem. So what do we think this means for UK startups? Well, first of all, I think that we th this shouldn't really have much of an impact on the tech sector generally. This isn't really a tech situation or a situation where tech companies were at risk or taking unacceptable uh, risks. Uh, we're talking about a liquidity issue at a large regional bank uh, in the US. So this should not be read as any kind of uh, downturn for tech opportunities at a global level. Indeed, we're in one of the most exciting periods for tech and life sciences with huge advances uh, uh, in uh, climate and green tech, for example, or AI, think of ChatGPT, uh, advanced in quantum computing, uh, life sciences, our entire economy is undergoing digital transformation, and you only need to look at the continued success of later stage or mature tech companies. So what might be the impact of this at the level of tech startups? Should we consider uh, uh, whether this is going to have, on the one hand, a short-term impact, and on the other hand, any medium to long-term impact? In the immediate short-term, startups and their investors should focus on the following priorities. First, communication. If they're not already doing so, uh, startups and companies that banked with SBB should be communicating with their stakeholders. Employees worried about payroll, investors worried about cash, and getting in touch with critical suppliers. Next, uh, any payments that were suspended over the past, past few days. This all happened in such a, a very short period of time, so hopefully should not be a major concern. However, there may need to be some conversations with uh, counterparties, hopefully, there's some commercial pragmatism around this, given that it's only been a few days. Also important, funding. So uh, if there is any follow-on uh, temporary dislocation in funding, which there shouldn't be, so I won't spend much time on this, a company should be reviewing its funding documents, uh, having a, a general health check, as Caroline mentioned earlier, to see what is possible and on what terms. So founders and companies may uh, wish to look into uh, their ability to use instruments that are quick to put in place, things like convertible debt, promissory notes, um, which also have the advantage of avoiding triggering any kind of down round. Companies should also look at impacted third parties, customers and suppliers, e even though uh, they may not have their, their cash tied up the company, they may be critical customers and suppliers who are in difficulty. Uh, and if this were to be a concern, um, Query whether this needs to start conversations about uh, support that they, they can provide uh, to their suppliers or even acquisitions further down the chain. If we look at this from the long-term perspective, how are investors going to be approaching fundraising differently going forward? Well, as I said, I don't think there should be any impact 
this is a liquidity issue with a regional, large regional bank in the US, and the government response has been fast and decisive. So the most obvious question I think companies, uh, startups will have is how to mitigate the risk of anything similar in the future. Questions companies and directors should be asking are along the lines of, uh, are, are they ready? Uh, is there a contingency plan in place? Or uh, have you, again, conducted a health check and reviewed your financing and documents to understand and anticipate your options? Obviously, people will be talking about the diversification of banking arrangements. Should startups be looking to place their cash with more than one financial institution? Uh, and certainly investors will be asking questions as to you know, where, where the funds that are raised are, are being held. I don't think this is going to be much different from questions that are already routinely asked by sophisticated investors um, as to where, where funds are being held and how they can be retrieved. Next up, any changes to deal terms? It's obviously very early, so we can't say yet, but do we think there should be any changes to deal terms in, for startups looking to raise funds? Other than building in emergency funding provisions, like we see with more uh, private equity style deals, um, what, what issues would we be trying to address by changes to deal terms? I, again, we should remind ourselves that this, isn't this is really more a, a banking liquidity issue rather than an issue with the underlying tech companies themselves. That being said, um, this, uh, this, this all contributes to a general trend of a, uh, you could say, a, a more mature approach to investing in startups that we've been seeing. We've been seeing more structured and protective terms for mid to late stage investments. Perhaps this will uh, trickle down to more early stage investments. Perhaps uh, this might trigger interest for uh, a broader invest investor base. Um, we'll be starting to see, uh, continuing to see interest from, for example, sovereign wealth clients who are able to uh, to enter into uh, the investments in these startups early and take a long-term view. And I think this will also contribute to a, a trend we've been seeing um, of more rigorous due diligence and activating uh, uh, expertise from, from tech specialists when, when looking to make investments. So altogether, I think it's been good news this morning on both fronts for, uh, for depositors with SVB on both sides of the Atlantic. And well, this shouldn't be read as having a negative impact on tech and life sciences companies. No doubt it's going to trigger discussion in the months to come as to what can be done uh, to avoid a repeat and whether companies and their investors are sufficiently prepared. Brilliant. Thanks very much for that, Chris. And maybe just, just looking outside of the US and the UK, so Brian, just, um, just looking at, at what you're seeing in APAC, are you seeing anything particular, any particular concerns? Thanks, Caroline. Yeah, sitting here in Hong Kong, um, I think there's definitely been a lot of interest in the story for sure, but the consensus has largely been that this is going to have a fairly limited impact in APAC. Uh, in China, SVP, SVB, as Phil was mentioning at the top of this call, has a 50-50 joint venture with a local partner, the Shanghai Pudong Development Bank. But the messaging has been very clear, you know, we're separate, we're independent. Uh, we run things in a completely different way. This is not going to impact us. It's not going to impact our customers. Uh, and that has generally been the sense. Um, there are some sectors that seem to have been a bit more exposed um, within tech to SVB, in particular the biotech sector. But even there, we don't really see uh, any signs of any panic. Um, I won't be mentioning any names of names of particular companies that may have been affected, but there's certainly a good few companies that have come out there and there's been a wave of announcements saying, we don't bank with SVP. We're not exposed here. 
Uh, and the overall sense is um, uh, the markets here are taking it in their stride and have, in fact, here in Hong Kong and in China, uh, been up rather than down on this news. Um, that being said, there is nevertheless pretty much uh, a clear sense that this is still significant. Um, uh, the risk of contagion, probably not. Um, it was seen as a very specific uh, business model. As others have just mentioned, you know, this is a regional bank in the US having liquidity issues. It's not seen as uh, posing any systemic threat to anybody here uh, in APAC. But nevertheless, there's uh, some signs that uh, some companies out there uh, are pausing and thinking, well, let, let's have a good think about what our financing uh, arrangements look like. Are we seeing any of the red flags um, that um, could have been spotted before what happened to SVB? Um, the other one, maybe not to be neglected, is that, you know, through its joint venture in China, uh, SVB did have quite a lot of customers uh, based in China for whom SVB played quite an important role, not so much just as a sole source of funding, which it typically would not be, but as a bit of a connector or conduit uh, into the U.S. market. Uh, for example, you could you could you could open an account through KYC processes that appear to uh, accept a, a POC mobile number for verification purposes. And actually, in China, that's something that is quite you know quite welcome and definitely means. Um, for companies that are trying to get banking services in the U.S. market, that's a much, much easier first step. However, while that will certainly be regretted by Chinese companies that had that facility, and I think you know it's it will be seen as many as by many as a, as, as a significant enough setback, uh, it hardly rises to the level of a systemic catastrophe. Um, one certainly people will be continuing to spend uh, a lot of time discussing and monitoring, uh, but overall, there's definitely uh, a consensus of no panic here in APAC. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Brian. And and Jack, are you seeing similar sorts of things in the Middle East? Yeah, you know, there's, there's perhaps even less to say in the Middle East. I mean, I think I think you know, there's a, there was a branch in Israel um, which is which is being you know, reviewed by the government in terms of supporting local businesses there in terms of the exposure they they've had. Um, but in, in the broader Middle East, especially where we are in the UAE and, and others, the, the sort of more protectionist banking market um, is just here and there's, there's been some more reticence to allow sort of foreign banks to access the local market. And so as a result, we've had less less uh, exposure as licenses of foreign banks have been, been limited. But I think this comes at a time where a lot of regional regulators were thinking about becoming more expansive and allowing the international banks to come in with different tech platforms. And so this may, I think, Create a, a broader, sort of more conservative approach of, of sort of emerging markets, central banks uh, to that, especially in Dubai, where there was a huge growth in, in the tech industry and a big concern regarding the ability to open bank accounts quickly. There's been a big push um, to get more sort of tech-focused banks in the market, and the central bank was certainly you know reviewing that. We do have concerns that might slow down the sort of internationalisation of banking models here, the open banking framework, some of the things that we're hoping to you know, drive a bigger marketplace um, as we get a slightly more conservative approach um, from the, the, the central bank and also a, a bigger concentration on recovery and resolution, which has been lagging in many jurisdictions across emerging markets in terms of its regulatory regime will probably see a, a bigger uptake on that. And so perhaps a more conservative and, and focused approach from the central bank now at a time when actually we were hoping for perhaps more flexibility. Um, but other than that, there's, I don't think there's a huge amount to report here. That's great. Thanks very much, Jack. And maybe just um, just to pick up on a couple of questions that we've had coming in. So I 
think one question that's come in was around these portfolios. So were the portfolios unhedged and is there no requirement to hedge AFS books? Uh, Young, I don't know, did you want to pick that one up? Sure, sure. Uh, in the US, there, there's no formal uh, you know, statutory or regulatory requirement to, to hedge AFS securities uh, in the banking book, but there is a bevy of interagency guidance that's been put out over, over the past few decades in terms of managing the interest rate risks um, of, of, of securities that are held in the portfolio. Um, so those risk management practices include having appropriate policies and procedures, modeling out your exposures, uh, incorporating stress tests as necessary. And so my view is that this should have been flushed out in the supervisory process. Uh, it's quite possible that the contagion and losses were so quick um, that the regulators were caught flat-footed. Um, but to answer the question, there's no formal requirement, uh, but there are supervisory expectations. Brilliant, thanks very much. And then another question on, on the regulation. So uh, we've got a question around the cause of the failures and to what extent they might indicate a failure of regulation or a failure of management. And I, I know, Jeff, you were you were talking about the fact that it, these were um, exposures, you know, heavily, heavy interest rate um, exposures. So do you think, I, I suppose, just from a US perspective, is this the kind of thing, I mean, clearly it's the kind of thing that's already covered by regulation. So is this a monitoring issue? Is this extra regulation required? Is this just a bank specific issue? I think there's going to be a, a round of uh, examination of how, in fact, banks deal with interest rate risk, especially in the um, in, in the health and maturity uh, portfolio, um, whether it's necessary to impose more requirements there. I think there's going to be another look at at liquidity stress testing and liquidity coverage ratios, especially for banks below the uh, the, the, the global systemic risk level, um, so that we could see something revised there. As everyone knows, the Fed is supposed to come out with a new set of Basel III implementation rules this year, and I think that's going to be affected in unknown ways by by, by, by these developments, since those don't go directly to liquidity, but I think that they're going, there's, the politics of it will suggest that, that, that even they become affected by this. Um, furthermore, I think that there's a good possibility here that rather than doing what is kind of a bailout of, unsecure, of uninsured depositors, that there, there will be more discussion of forthrightly raising the deposit insurance limit to something much higher. Uh, than $250,000, um, because in fact, uh, insuring those those uninsured deposits is what's going on now, uh, one way or the other, even if it's through this bank term facility. Um, the fact is the credit risk or the, the, the ultimate interest rate risk will reside with the government. Phil, did you want to pick up on that as well? Apologies, I was on mute. I was, trying, I was thinking about adding to, to this, Jeff, as well, that uh, there may be a rethink of the um, enhanced prudential requirements, which make the systemically important banks look safe now, and to the extent that those might uh, have to be extended to small regional banks and, and other banks. And I think you're absolutely right. And re-extended, right? Because they were lifted right, years ago, exactly. right? Yeah. And, you're right about the liquidity coverage ratio that's been, uh, uh, we understand, in the works for some time now. And I think that's going to be an impetus for it, uh, for the Fed to come out with something. Uh, Just for explanation, 
Right. Just these liquidity coverage ratios are meant to uh, ensure that there are sufficient liquid assets, that means available for sale, uh, to cover deposit withdrawals over some stressed period, some set time frame, uh, where it, depending on the kind of bank it is. So um, it's a it's a 30 day stress horizon as well right, as there's, that's the right. net, there's the net stable funding ratio, which is an expectation of managing liquidity needs over a one year timeline. So the question of there's a question of whether that's going to start uh, being applied to, to some of these institutions as well. The other thing I'll add in addition to liquidity requirements is resolution planning requirements. So that threshold had been raised through the Economic Recovery Act a few years ago. And, um, you know, th those resolution plans are intended to give the regulators a blueprint blueprint for unwinding the bank. And, you know, we know Silicon Valley Bank was was just under that threshold. So we'll see if those requirements change. Thanks, Young. Thanks, Beth. And I suppose just looking at other areas of growing regulation. So, Jack, maybe just um, before we close, just a couple of seconds on potential impact on the crypto industry. Yeah, so I, I think it's only going to make it more difficult for you know, the crypto industry to, to maintain sort of credibility with investors and also for crypto startups to, op to open bank accounts, which were, you know, the, these banks would go to areas for, for the crypto industry to turn to when, you know, they weren't receivers receptive in other banks, especially in emerging markets where, you know, an in, international account was remained an option. And I think the biggest challenge is going to be for, you know, the, the the, the bank's exposures to, to, to holding assets backing stable coins, which are also a big factor in sort of trying to support the, the crypto industry sort of gain credibility by saying they had these one-to-one -one backed um, stable coins. I think when it sort of perhaps things unwind and realize that maybe the stable coin holdings are with these banks as well, you know, it's, it's only going to sort of add, add to the woes of the crypto industry after the, the FTX collapse. So, it may continue to have a, a negative impact for the for the foreseeable until the restructurings take effect and and you know the crypto players can can establish accounts with um with other banks and sort of gain a greater sort of trust with the market again. Fantastic, brilliant. Thanks very much, Jack. Um, so just before I close and and thank all of our speakers, I think we've um we've been told actually while we're on the call that we're now cleared to say that we were actually. Um, acting for HSBC on their acquisition of SVB UK. Um, so obviously massive congratulations to the HSBC team who worked incredibly hard over the weekend to make that happen. So thank you once again to all of my speakers, to Phil Angelov, Jeff Berman, Young Kim, John McLennan, Brian Harley, Jack Hardman and Chris Gray. And thank you very much to everyone for listening in.